and she's acknowledging that she doesn't know where I am, and I have to acknowledge that things aren't going well at home, and she's bringing me a Menken's bag. Oh, by the way, that was my ex. <laughs> I used to sleep with the Menken's lady. It's a nightmare for Don. Mad Men, a term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. To New York. Come on, let's make a night of it. Welcome to They Coined It. You know, some episodes of Mad Men, and some of this is because we had the blog and covered stuff so in-depth that it kind of sticks in your head as somewhat definitive about an episode. Mm-hmm. Like, like we group, we formed like a group opinion and that's, bit, that yeah. carries as There's the truth. There's something yeah. definitive about it. Yeah. But I'm finding that um, most, if not all, I can rewatch and have almost no attachment to, the, to, to how we might have seen it. I can watch it pretty much fresh. Maybe it's just mm-hmm. the right amount of time has passed or whatever. But I can watch these episodes three and four times now even. And there is no definitive. There's no definitive anything. It's kind of like it just might seem one way one day and I can watch it again a month later and get a totally different set of opinions. You know what I mean? Like there's just, there's- Can you give me we, like we a ha- specific, well, like, like what might you about, have- We're going to talk about six month leave. And Wait, what? <laughs> we're going to talk about <laughs> six month leave. That was episode nine of season two of Mad Men. And we, you know, we went through it at the time and it's a truly terrific, terrific, terrific episode. We went through it at the time. We had our group analysis of it. But now I look at it differently. And I swear I could watch this again this afternoon and and have a whole nother, we could do another podcast about the same episode a different way after. Oh, absolutely. I'm certain it really felt fresh. I was not looking forward to seeing this episode again. It's heavy. It's <laughs> heartbreaking. And I and I, you know, and then they and then as is their way, you go to this whole other world that you never knew was, that was sort of delightful. The whole password, secret, speakeasy, gambling. I thought you were talking about the blood drive. You know, the blood drive, it's funny. (laughs) The blood drive really surprised me this time. Like, why a blood drive? Like, blood drives are now a thing. And there's much less to do about them. And I don't, I've never been part of a department war with that, but even if it was a thing, why is the creative department like spearheading this thing and giving away prizes and like taking up? I mean, someone's counting billable hours there, even then, I'm sure. Actually, one of my favorite moments of that was, why, why don't we have posters? Was, the you know, we're the creative department we, yeah. and we didn't come up with posters. And that is so, I mean, I've worked in so many agencies. I worked in pharma, so it was pharmaceutical advertising or promotional medical education. Either way, what we are is a communications company. Mm -hmm. And when there are these epic communications fail or we can't figure, we can't get away from PowerPoint of all fucking programs or whatever. Like it's, it said that when they said that about the posters, I just, that was so true. Yeah. You know, who's going to suck it at, at advertising our own event internally. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We are, we are. Right. We'll advertise your product. That's right. But but anyway, so I did, had no idea why why a blood drive became so such a important event. But I guess that was the thing in 1962. Six month leave was written by Andre and Maria Jacquemetan and Matthew Weiner, directed by Mike Uppendahl. This is his first, yes. It's the first I seem to remember. Yeah, yeah, remember Mike. Him. Coming in. Give Mike a Google. He's he's done oh, lots he's done of lot. shows yeah. that you love. Um, super, super nice guy. And he, having a hell of a career. But yeah, this is the first time we're seeing him direct. Original air date was September 28th, 2008. And it took place on Monday, August 6th through Wednesday, August 8th, 1962. The first thing we have is Don, who, I'm, you know, I mentioned last week he was... <laughs> He was frozen in time by staying in the office that first night, but he is in fact now staying at the Roosevelt. It's a bit of a bit of a head fake, though. The way that the his wake up scene is shot, it looks like it could be the Draper's bedroom. No, that's what mm-hmm, I thought for a mm-hmm, moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, the layout of the room and the, sh- the 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 angle and everything is looks like their house, and it's not till 
he opens the hotel room door to pick up the paper that you remember that he's not in his house. That's when we first learn that it is uh, the day that Marilyn Monroe has died or has been, or the day after or whatever, found. Um, Interestingly enough, podcast listeners may know the podcast you're wrong about. It's one of my favorite. It, they, they debunk stories or they go back and revisit stories that we know kind of almost exactly what you were just describing. Like we already know what the story is and they go Mm. back and they go, well, actually they just got some special honor by Snopes as, as, you know, great debunkers. And I just happened to be listening to an old episode yesterday about Kurt Cobain and the copycat suicides. And it was this whole discussion of suicides and celebrity suicides and Marilyn Monroe got brought up and and it was just mm. it, and and just how people find themselves relating to it. I happened to listen to that yesterday wow. and then I sit down last night and I watch and I watch this and we get to see all these different reactions. What's interesting to me there's this very overt reaction from all the ladies in the office and it's kind of a gender split, right? The guys are kind of you know rolling through it. But the women are standing around and they're crying and Jane has to be nudged to, you know, recognize Don as he comes in. Yeah. Um, Joan is lying down on the couch in Roger's office, which I love. I just love that she goes into Roger's office because... Wasn't that knows, a wonderful discovery? Yeah, really great. And of course, when he comes in, where are you? You're supposed to be at. And she knows exactly what his schedule says. That's right. And we also, <laughs> right, still. And You're she, supposed to be at lunch, right? She knows everything about everybody in this office, but especially about Roger. Yeah. And as we've discussed, we don't see her own place. We don't Correct. see, a, uh, we don't see a, a Joan a office, a Joan no, desk, right. anything. That's right. And Joan would never let herself be seen weak in any way, in front of her girls. The women are having a real reaction to Marilyn. It's, it's a very personal experience. And, and you know, she wasn't the Marilyn of the 50s, right? She, she, was, she was getting on with her career. She was doing more acting. You weren't seeing, like, the pinup type stuff at that point in, in the early 60s. Although Hollis makes that really great point in the, in the elevator. I keep thinking about Joe DiMaggio, which is... Yeah. Perhaps the that that is kind of the male the male take on it was I was thinking about Joe DiMaggio, and what's funny is they had been divorced for ten years at that point. But that's a perfect example of, I mean, grant you that was a celebrity marriage, sure. But it's a great example of well that we relate to women by who they are associated with, and we do that more with women. I think so, but but I think but what's interesting about that I think even more specifically in this case was. Uh, no one's wondering about how Arthur Miller's doing. <laughs> Joe DiMaggio is Joe DiMaggio, right? So it also reminds me of when Gene Wilder died, and everybody, including me, I'm guilty of it, talked about Gilda Radner. Gene Wilder went out, had another wife and was had a widow, you know. But we do we have these we have these celebrity associations, and we, we do. and we latch onto them. Like I said, it was she was getting on with her career. She was not the male relationship with Marilyn Monroe was less and less as this sort of sex pot pinup, um, the way it might have been in Joe DiMaggio's, you know, when they were married. But their reference point to her was more and more the fact that she was Joe DiMaggio's wife, and uh, lots of stories about the fact that Joe DiMaggio considered her his wife. He never remarried and was attached to her till the day he died. Anyway, this this dynamic though, I did want to kind of review it and understand and get get a little perspective, Roberta, from you, best you can. What was it with women that was uh, so identifying about Marilyn? Your opinion, the way it's displayed here. Well, I hate to say this, I hate to burst your. I, I'm a little. This is another one where I'm a little skeptical that all the women would have been so broken up about Marilyn. I and and I I don't know. I wasn't there, and I, so I don't know if this was. Um, research. Right, this isn't something we hear about, right? right? We're just observing it, right? Right. I don't know if this was researched or if this was invented. I would imagine it was. I, there's got to be enough contemporary accounts to to know. It struck me as a good plot device. It, as a good plot device, it struck me. I get, I get it with Joan because she identifies. She's probably always been told there's a similarity, even with a, even as a redhead, right? There is a, and the way yeah. that Joan is, the way that Joan is always objectified, 
um, as Mar- you know, she I think she saw a little bit through Marilyn to, you know, to the way that people don't see through Joan, right? I think mm-hmm. I think I get Joan's identification. I I have a hard time believing it. And again, I I could be completely wrong. This was just mm-hmm. this is just how it struck yeah. me that I think when you're hurt like that by a celebrity's death. Now, it's all these years later, we've gone through a lot more celebrities' deaths. I, are, I think that's a huge part of it. It gets bigger and bigger. There's more celebrities right. that, uh, now with social media, right? We've all been affected right. by, but but there hasn't been a day when all of us have been crying since, I don't know, John Lennon or, yeah. Kurt Co- again, Kurt Cobain for, for those that, you know, I, they, they usually don't hit in that way. But part of what makes it hit in that way is, is an identification is like, I look back at, you know, John Lennon, we just commemorated 40 years, 40 years since, since his murder. And those of us that remember it vividly, remember it vividly. And I wrote a little thing on Facebook and it was that he was somehow, he was the biggest, most famous person in the world, but he was ours. Mm. He was, I mean, and and especially because he had become a New Yorker. He, but you always felt like John Lennon was your guy. Yeah. I have a hard time believing that, they all felt that way about Marilyn. So that's where I'm a little skeptical. Right, right. And it's, um, and there's a youth quotient, right? These these aren't celebrity deaths where it's like, oh, so-and-so was, you know, 78 years old and, you know, their their time had passed or they were already part of the, the culture um, for years and years. Marilyn was a contemporary. She was considered, you know, many years ahead of her, same as John Lennon. So I think there's something different to the shocking death of a celebrity versus just the everyday death of a, of a celebrity. Like, to me, I think they would have been more, scan- like, some people would have been more scandalized. She was found in the nude. I'm quoting Elton John, right? Like <laughs> That would all come out later, right? I mean, that, the people didn't know about, you know, Bobby Kennedy and... Needles they, and drugs. They it was, knew stuff. It was it was around, but it was that, that wasn't in the that wasn't in the day's paper. Not in the paper, but every but everybody. I mean, happy birthday, Mr. President. There was plenty they did. You know, Marilyn. I I, I think it says something interesting about celebrity, and I also think it just rang a little inauthentic. This one. I mean, again, I would I would love to. Uh, I haven't researched. it. I always took it that if if it was represented that way on Mad Men, that it stemmed from something, you know. Something real. I think the dates are always right, and the facts are always yeah. right. I don't yeah. think the reactions are always interesting, accurate. Okay. I, 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 and again, I could be incorrect. Let's remember, though, radio, movies, TV, none of these was more than like 40 years old. You know, the idea of mass media before 1920 was a billboard in Times Square or a billboard at Atlantic City. You know, that that was mass media. There wasn't a common language around celebrity, whether it's celebrity death or celebrity events or celebrity period. It was still relatively new. And, you know, a, a death like Marilyn's was a pre, almost a singular event. I mean, next year there'd be another, you know, celebrity death that would rock rock the world. The idea of the media creating someone and then and, and then being the the messenger for such shocking news was still relatively new. There was Pearl Harbor and little else <laughs> that was like this this media thing. So it's an interesting phenomenon, whatever it is. These are going to be the same women that are going to be crying when when the president dies. And when the president dies, I I believe it. Whatever you show me about oh, sure, that, I believe it. Right. I have a well, we hard... all know the contemporary accounts for that because it's, it's all over right. the place. I have a hard time believing that Marilyn Monroe, and even if it's only half the office, mm-hmm. is going to have the same emotional wave to that same degree. I just, you know, it's not the same as John Lennon. And she's past her, I don't know. Please, coiners, if any of you know, if any of you have a, has a mother who would remember or a, or even a father who might have been there that day, or, you know, like, let's, mm. let's see what we can find out about uh, if anybody has an anecdote. Everything you get about her death is is what we found out later. Is sort of the story that emerged. Again, even a Princess Diana. This, which, which is, I just don't see her death in the moment that she was cut down in her prime. She mm-hmm. wasn't in her prime. Like I just don't see it in the same. Yeah, no, it's, having the same pack and the same punch. That's an interesting take. I've, I, I again, I, I kind of took it at face value, but yeah. 
Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big fraud. All I've right. Become, I've become a lot more cynical, All right. I guess. Marilyn died. Nobody cared. Let's Nobody cared. All right. Just, just Joan. Hey, you're not like her. Physically a little, but don't tell me that makes you sad. It's not a joke. Betty takes a journey. <laughs> journey around her house. True. You know, no, no shame in the house dress back then. No shame in the house dress game. No, and what's interesting is I'm looking at it and I'm like, we've never seen Betty in a house dress. And I'm like, oh, that's because she doesn't have her curlage in her hair because there's nobody coming home for dinner to get dressed for. Right. She always was either fancy or getting fancy. That's right. How to how to prepare for your man getting home. The, t- the 10 tips, we went over that. That's right. And now she doesn't have to do any of that. It's not just that Betty's depressed. It's that she doesn't ha- she just doesn't fucking have to. But Betty's depressed. Well, she's getting up and the- she doesn't even see the kids off before school. The How's that? Taking it. I, I, I'd do anything for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think that's all, all definitely of a piece. What I love, what I noticed when, uh, skipping ahead to when Sarah Beth comes over to borrow the dresses, she's got a little pocket in her house dress for her cigarettes. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, so I will be staying around the house. I will not be getting dressed, and I'm going to be smoking. <laughs> I'll be, smoking, I'll yeah. be chain smoking the whole time. That's I mean, right. It's really just wild. And but I can picture those like sort of seersucker. Oh and they my did God. have yeah, they, totally. they did have pockets for sure. They were they were a house coat. They were a house coat actually. Where are you gonna keep your smokes, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and your cell phone. Wait a yeah, minute. Right. <laughs> so so basically that we see we see a few things with Betty, right? We see this thing with Sarah Bath, and that ends up becoming very interesting. We see this depression and and this uh, and and her guardedness about the situation with Carla, although she then she then apologizes to her, which was sort of a nice. very sweet moment with Carla. The first real moment we have really from Carla at all. Carla, the plot neglected, but that's a whole <laughs> other. And then her trying to break into the desk. And that's in, that's so interesting, isn't it? We're seeing her no longer respect these boundaries that Don has kind of arbitrarily drawn. Well, they're not arbitrary to Don, but that have been arbitrarily drawn for her as to where her marriage exists and how it's compartmentalized. You know, her husband's really drawn these lines for his convenience. We know, we know at least some of it um, already. Um, Adam, Cash, <laughs> I mean, photos, Dick Whitman. things like this. Dick Whitman is in there. Um, but she doesn't know that. She just knows it's, it's eating at her. It's part of this anger, I think, that you keep talking about. And she knows he keeps secrets. And, you know, we'll get to this later, but I love when Roger says he's so secretive. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows Um, what's going on? He's so secretive. She knows there are secrets and there's a locked drawer. And she's always been respectful of it. And now she's she's had it. She has had it. And if she could smash that desk like she smashed that chair, we'd be be having a different episode right now. It's the lingering effects of A Night to Remember and going through the suits. It's, It's an extension of that. That's not entirely out of her system. It's not out of her system, and she's officially done giving fucks because in the past, even if she had wanted to get into that drawer, how would she explain it to Don if she, if John came home and if Don came home and there was a, a banged up a banged up keyhole? Now she doesn't she doesn't give a fuck whether Don comes home or not. She's not there, but even if he does, she doesn't give a fuck. I went in. I'm breaking into your desk. Yep. Yep. Sue me. So this Sarah Beth thing is very shady. Ooh. Mm. And it gets, it gives her a little little brings her back to life. I mean, at the end of the episode, she's now baking with the kids. She's back <laughs> interacting with her children. You know, I think I think Betty Draper deserves some of the relook that we're giving her because I think at the time she's a total child. She's a total bitch. She's total. Um, you know, she's a horrible. She's a whole. She's a horrible mother. She, and it's like I, I'm all for the revisit on Betty. But that doesn't take away any of that other stuff. Because I think, I think it's all true. I think it's just a more rounded picture. Because I think she is not a natural mother, not a good mother. She doesn't like being a mother. <laughs> it's <laughs> not, not her, not not her, her favorite bag. thing. And Betty is at her best. She is at her bettiest when she's playing high school games. 
and oh being God. the queen bee and being a total bitch. This was horrible. I mean, this right? was really devious. You know, the look on her face when she walks away from setting the date with Arthur. Just, it just absolutely, the blood just <laughs> drains from her face. She just played both of them and threw their groins together. I mean, it just. Right? And then, you know, she looks at her watch and goes over and takes the phone off the hook, right? When it was that easy to avoid a phone call back then. That was it. That's the real Betty, everybody. That is Betty Hofstad. Sorry. That is the real Betty. I think if we've learned anything from life and from this show is it's all, Betty concerned about Francine is also the real Betty. I mean, she's, you know, it's not all one thing, but for sure, uh, she can cut a bitch. <laughs> I mean, she... Unbelievable. The line she says to Sarah Beth is you can turn it on and off. And that's interesting that she has that. Yeah, that's Betty. That'll that'll be that's Betty's epitaph. Why do you think she did this? Why? Not where does she get her skill set? I got that. Because she's learning that she's been powerless in her marriage. And where someone like Betty, who's kind of had the world spin around, you know, her 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 pinky finger is feeling powerless. And so how do, when you're powerless, you kind of revert back to where you can pull the strings. And this is where she can be manipulative and have things work out. Even if it's not something she necessarily cares about or wants, it's a way of exerting power. And if everything was going swimmingly and her life were fine and her marriage were fine and her relationship with her husband were fine, she kind of wouldn't, you know, she'd go back to dishing with Sarah Beth and flirting with Arthur if she wanted to, but leave it at that. Here she has to like, like you said, throw their groins at each other because she can. Mm. It's a it's a bully move. I think that's frankly. yeah. I think that's great. I think that's all right. Let's take a quick break, and on the other side, we've got just a little bit about Freddie Rumson. We might want to talk about get some of that shampoo for the carpet. <laughs> First thing I'd like to say, my friends, is um. I had the pleasure of interviewing Mr. Murray, Joel Murray, who gave, God, what a performance. I really noticed his performance this time. I really watched, watched him at that dinner, at dinner, the, you know, the dinner table in the restaurant. His performance was really understated in, in terms of, um, like he didn't, like I was just really watching him not like oversell any of the lines. Like he just was... Mm. He was just being Freddie, <laughs> Freddie. doing his, yeah. you know, just talking. And and it was yeah. so believable. He's such a believable character. You know, we got to this episode. Of course, it stands out, you know, when you see Six Month Leave, you go, oh, the Freddie episode. But it, I didn't realize until this rewatch that we're doing how relatively little of Freddie we really see in a season and a half mm. up to this. I thought he, he, he stayed in my memory as a, um, not a major character, but kind of a more more prominent, more that we just see more of him week to week, episode to episode, than we actually do. He's very prominent in Babylon, which is, you know, where where Peggy gets discovered. Um, a couple others here and there, he kind of pops up, but really not so much up to this. So he's just been this kind of likable, drunken uh, copywriter. Yeah. So I interviewed him... And we will definitely post the link. This episode aired in September of 2008. I spoke to him in December. It, it, you know, it was really fresh for him and for all of us. And, it, you know, he was he was absolutely wonderful. He was he one of the things he talked about was how <laughs> he's such an everyman type, how people um, always come up to him and know him from somewhere. And it's never something he's been in. And they all think they've had a drink with him, which is very likely. And definitely people from this industry, from the advertising industry, say, listen, I knew five, I knew five of those guys. I knew five guys that you remind me oh, of. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this, Dan. It's it's in the interview. Uh one of our one of our writers, uh, Hullabaloo, she mm. she went to like a Mad Men concert event that happened on the on the West Coast back then. And she said, Joel Murray was the surprise sexy. <laughs> and he said to me, oh, that was, he said, that was her. He said, I wanted to, I wanted to print that up and frame it. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, he was playing a man much older than he was. 
And he's from such a talented, famous family. I mean, it's just unbelievable the amount of modern comedy content from his brother Bill, his brother Brian Doyle, of course. It's just, it's stunning how much comes from them. So it's uh, it's really great just to just to see him in something like Mad Men's a great show and like a Murray pops up. So it's... it's I can't fabulous. remember which... Um, I, this is easy enough for me to check and forgive me, uh, Joel, if you happen to hear this. He's he's active or, you know, was and will be again once <laughs> once people do things in person. But he's a big improv guy. I just can't remember which... Um, mm. which Secret Onlings? He might be. He might be. You know, Stephanie Courtney. So, by the way, thanks for all the great feedback on our uh, our Christmas. We never, you know, it's weeks yeah. later. We for, we never we never got back to you to say uh, how fun that was, and thanks for you know enjoying that. And what, it, it was a pleasure to get Stephanie Courtney, um, who's 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 big in the Groundlings and who is you know Flo, the progressive girl. And if you happen to miss that wow. piece of of who who she is, go back and listen to our Chris, Christmas episode. Our little uh, secret mm-hmm. Santa included uh, a groundling. So, yeah, they may, he may be a groundling. I'm, I don't remember. Anyway, let's get into it. Like I said, I was not looking forward to this episode. To your point, it may have all these other things in it, but there's one thing about this episode that you don't forget, and that's Freddie peeing himself yeah. And, yeah. and getting taken out, you know, for one last bash, which is wildly... They, they, that they take him out to get shit-faced, plastered, <laughs> unironically, you know? It's as if they wrote the entire season around how do, we, how do we get these guys all out for an evening of a bender. Watching that happen, watching, watching him, you know, first, first start to do the presentation like it's going fine. And then all of a sudden he goes kind of dark and he's clearly in a in a blackout and he's and he's peeing himself. Yeah. And then he passes out. And one of the things he says in, in the interview actually is, you know, once you're wet, once you're standing there wet, regardless of how it happened and your whole leg is wet, it's easy to feel embarrassed. Like you we have these visceral sense memory yeah. kind of you can't help it. I thought that was really interesting. And then he's like, and then I got to pass out. And so I didn't have to deal with everybody's deal, reactions. Right. I thought everybody's reactions were really interesting. I think that's what there is to to kind of parse through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Sal, first of all, just thinks it's hilarious. Just another, just another gag on a Tuesday. Then Pete's reaction is one of total disgust and horror and judgment, frankly. And that and that judgment remains consistent, right? He he refers to to, oh, these people are always blaming society and he's bucking up Peggy later on in the episode, but it it's with a heavy dose of judgment toward Freddie's condition. And yet, Pete Campbell is correct. Regardless of the shittiness of him and the lack of compassion and lack of humanity in, in that reaction, he's the one taking the hard line. Like, can, Freddie cannot continue in that in that office. And and Pete is correct. Yeah, I think I think the whole... This whole thing starts with the idea that a chronic alcoholic at your workplace is dealt with in a much, much more humane manner today, right? Sure. We need to get him help. He wouldn't be fired outright over this. It would never be handled that way. That person would be given 10 kinds of services. And I'm not saying they would never be fired, but their first action wouldn't be to fire him. It would be to get him help first. And come and six month leave really would mean six month leave. He would come back. At least he would have the right to come back um, after six months after some kind of treatment or whatever. The well, it was interesting was. that Hazel. I didn't know Hazelden goes back that far. I think that was like the preeminent before, well before Betty Ford and all all the all the others. Yeah, no, Hazel Hazelden is a is a well known mm-hmm. treatment center to this day, or last I checked. But there would be a, there would be a, an abundance of sensitivity to the employee. As to how it was handled. Here's the other thing, though, that really struck me is, you know, a lot of what this show is about, as we've discussed, is about the consequences to all of their terrible behavior. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. God bless Freddie Rumson and his alcoholism, and it is out of control and tragic and painful to watch. 
But part of why it got so far is because of all that is permissible in this environment. Yeah, you're fine as long as you don't pee yourself right, before, you know, right before a client meeting. I mean, we all tolerate Freddie and his and his drunkenness because we're all having drinks at 11. Some of us are drinking at 11 a.m. as well. Roger's joke is, you know, there's a line and you wet it, right? <laughs> and that's still kind of the case. If somebody wants to drink, and I've worked with men and women who are serious alcoholics who didn't let it affect their work, what are you going to do? you know, drag someone into, into, into treatment? No, it, it, the minute it, it affects work, you want to treat them with sympathy and humanely and treat it as a disease and not, you know, so-and-so couldn't get it together. The, the whole idea that they're taking this guy out for a bender because he couldn't keep it together in the office is the basis of, <laughs> of, the, of, of how different things are now. That would never happen. I've worked with plenty of people. It's the industry. There's a lot of drinking in the office. There's a ton of drinking in the office, and there is still a level of permissibility. It's not quite the same, but it's not quite yeah. different either. And the question is still there. Where do you draw the line? You're saying as long as it doesn't affect work. Guess what? When you're drunk and in my face and being like, Roberta, you're really doing a good job, that does affect my work. Right, but the, the, so the line is moved. There's no question. But that is seen as affecting work. Roberta shouldn't have to be subjected to so-and-so's alcoholism. Yet, there are alcoholics we work with every day. Or even non-alcoholics who are just <laughs> drunker at work than they should be. But the point is, maybe they have a problem that how they deal with it is is more private. And there are people who don't miss a day of work because because of their, their addiction. There was really no process for handling it. Right. This was the process. Like, let's take them out for one last one last hoo-ha, and we'll have to put them on the boat and say say goodbye. I mean, really, they're talking about there are other cities. Like you, he yeah. doesn't he 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 can't work in this town again for a good long while. That's right. And and Roger says, look, they all think we're like this anyway. It's there's a protocol. We kids can't. So there, he just Freddie just was a fifteen out of ten. So he he had that had to happen. You know, at some places, maybe when he fell asleep, when a client was, when a when a, a hired celebrity like Jimmy Barrett was insulting the client, maybe that would have been where the line was today, or maybe that was twenty years ago. Who knows? But Freddie kind of went past all those lines without without throwing up any red flags. It was this 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 for them was that moment. Well, it's the red flags were there. Everybody, we yeah. we heard about Freddie Rumson before we met him that he that he's a drunk. It, so right. it's red flag. It's just that we don't do anything about red flags until that red flag is peeing on on your carpet. We, <laughs> you we don't even call them red flags. I mean, that's that's the whole thing. And then you've got Duck, who's like this, <laughs> the hardest on Freddie of all because he knows this guy's not going to work out because he didn't work out. Um, and you're you're right. Everybody kind of has their own take on it peggy's being the most um i won't say it's sympathetic in the sense of like knowing what to do she didn't know what to do either but she was the most uh, sort of showed the most humanity toward freddie for sure right the the rest of them the rest of them were so it was interesting pete and sal and peggy are the are the ones who knew witnessed mm-hmm. it sal again at first i thought it was just nervous laughter but he, you know, but as it got out... It was a and, genuine joy. Right. It was a really immature response beyond one... Right. As they're all still... He's well, still at the blood drive, they're all, they're all yucking about it, right? But they also think it's, it's not as consequential. That's correct. None of them do, including Peggy. Don was right. Peggy should have come to Don. Don is in charge of yeah. the creative team. Where, where any protocol exists, you tell your boss who is his boss what happened. Right. But she thought, yeah, you're an under the bridge. Let's not talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she really was coming from, from I think, a place of compassion. Total. Absolutely. But she, that was the wrong call. And again, Pete, who was coming from just being a, a judgmental shit, correct call. Correct call. We have to tell people and we have to get rid of him. And he, he you know, in, again, given the parameters of what they had to work with, they didn't have a, a program where they could send him off and bring him back. I'll, I'll, I'll amend what you said. We have to tell people, and there has to be consequences. Whether we have to get rid of them is that consequence. That's the part that I think is largely different now. Now, who do you think, by the time Freddie woke up and went home, everybody knew. Every secretary knew. So did his secretary gossip? Oh, I don't they think they all knew. knew. No, I think, I think that his secretary probably knew. 
First of all, it's probably not the first time. She did know. They told. They talked to her. Yeah, but Peggy just said that he's sick. Peggy didn't. I don't know that. Well, we don't know. We didn't see the conversation. Right. So we don't know what she knew. She knew. So, and how many times has she had to cover for Freddie for being blacked out? Probably. They were all staring at him. They hear this guy squishing through the office. They they were they were startled when he when he walked past. That's not how I saw. I mean, I know he was between what he must smell like, maybe, and sound like. It got heads turning. I didn't look at it as they were all ready for Freddie coming out of the office or knew ahead of time. I didn't see it that way at all. I saw it as like, what the hell is that? All right, Coiners, tell us what you saw there. I'm, I, I saw I saw it. I mean, this is this is such a subtle difference between their heads <laughs> turned to see it and their heads turned because of Minutia, it. I yeah. saw it as that the gossip had already spread like wildfire. No, I think that was mostly among the account people and <laughs> the creative team had been gossiping. You know, I thought part of this discussion about Freddie and what happens and how it's handled Parts of that story, I think, touch some of the larger themes of the episode. You know, so much of Don's story of his work as a creative comes down to how he uses his real life for, for work. You know, part of that came out actually last episode in, in, in Night to Remember. We use, I use my life and my work all the time and the argument with Betty. But we've seen it in The Wheel and we've seen it in so many other things. So it's it's part of it's part of how he goes to work every day, but now that his home life is completely topsy turvy, he has no idea what's going on. He really is at loose ends in so many ways with Betty. That's a discomfort with his real life. It's almost intruding. It's now like, wait a minute, I need to, <laughs> I need to keep real life at bay while I do my work and go to work each day and not let it come into. Uh, 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 the office too much because I've got unpleasant things at home. I've got an unhappy wife. I've got kids I don't see. This is not the picture of the American family that I need to bring to my clients to help them every day. And now I've got this new secretary who's getting me shirts and she's acknowledging that she doesn't know where I am and I have to acknowledge that things aren't going well at home and she's bringing me a Mencken's bag. Oh, by the way, that was right, my right, I used right. to sleep with the Mencken's lady. It's a nightmare for Don, right? My work informs my life. This is how I do it, yada, yada, ring-a-ding-ding. Wait a minute. <laughs> this wasn't such a good idea. This little setup I got for myself, it all looks great as long as the marriage is good. And now, holy shit. And um, I think that's a big theme of the episode. Everything from, like we were just saying, if, you, if you're a drunk at home, but you can come to work and do it, no problem. Separate church and state, it's all good. The, the discretion around Freddie, I think, is part of this dynamic of what's acceptable and what's not. Um, how Jane approaches it with Don is very interesting. Don is very conscious of the fact that a, he doesn't trust Jane as far as he can toss her. No, he really doesn't. It was very interesting. She she you tried know. a few different ways, and his instincts. And it, you know, remember he <laughs> pretty sharp. He, before we get to the ending, before we get to the the reveal, which got me so angry this time. <laughs> but Don not trusting Jane. I, I was thinking he trusted Peggy, but Peggy never probed. Peggy really oh, understood. No. She did not look at him with yeah. concerning, concerned eyes or whatever, whatever he he That's said. Right. She understood that discretion thing and still does. I mean, Peggy is the one you you can call, call to bail the, you out. You're in, bail you're you in the jail, fuck out right? of your drunk driving accident with your with your lover. As one does, yeah. <laughs> and and doesn't blink the next day, except, dude, give me my money, right? So Peggy really did bring a particular kind of discretion, and Jane doesn't. But but he really, he, his instincts on Jane are dead on. Even though Jane has been an exemplary, exemplary on his desk, and yet it's really something he is he is not having it. He doesn't trust her at nope. all. And, and boy, does that and, pay off? You know when she when, but when she yeah, and, and when, but when she tries to ingratiate herself a little bit. Well, well, highlight the fact of I hope you know mm. I'd be so I'd be in full discretion, which is Don's keyword, right? If you know discretion, you're Don, you're great on Don's desk, but he he nips that in the bud. Um, I don't know you. Oh yeah, that was great. <laughs> I don't know you. I have no reason to trust you or not trust you, and I'll just as soon not trust you until <laughs> until such time as I am sure that I can trust you. And you buying me shirts from Mankins is not a way to 
get in my good graces. It's not a way to be discreet at all. And, you know, we've all seen it. I, I'm trying to think of examples and I can't, but we've all seen it. Like the best way to prove that you're maybe not the most discreet person is to say, you know, I'm very, very discreet, right? <laughs> I mean, exactly. it's, it's just a shit show there. So, so Don's kind of, it's the other side of that coin, right? I, 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 I use my life to inform my work and isn't that great, but man, now, now that the wave is kind of crashing in on itself, there's a lot of damage that happens when you've built your house on that, on that sand. But I think a lot of that stems from the Freddy stuff. You know, when I, I love that scene where he admonishes the guys outside the, the blood drive mm-hmm. and, and they're yucking it up. And he's like, it's only a man. You know, he gets really stern and totally shames them for how they're acting. And it's kind of like, yeah, this isn't about, this is a man's private life and it's his name and it's it's what we say about him. And he's the one defending him saying, we don't have to fire Freddie. Like there's other ways of doing this. Like what's all the, so he's kind of on the wrong side of the Pete approach. You know, he he's he's the one thinking that it can all be managed, which there's a part of that that you you sympathize with that you 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 want Don's way to win out because we like Freddie and he's a great guy and we don't want to see him crushed and and all these things but he he's sort of not getting it he's sort of not getting the seriousness of alcoholism and addiction and and the way things are going to go for someone like Freddie his strive for the dignity is 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 wonderful and it, and that's and I think it's both right I think there has to be a consequence there's a professional consequence and that doesn't mean we get to go around and laugh about him Right. I think both of those are true. But I think it's not a matter of does he get addiction or not addiction. Again, there's no there's no professional solution at this time for how to manage addiction. He needs to not work there anymore. That that is like it's again, Mm -hmm. it's not about the judgment of what whether he's ill or whether he's whatever. He it is no longer feasible for him to represent them as an agency. I have a very good friend. I can't remember the guy's name. How about if I give you our names? I'm Dick Dollars. This is Mike Moneybags, and this, Tilden Katz. <laughs> so do you think there's a relationship between the fact that uh, Jane handed Don a Menken's bag and he used his code name was Tilden Katz? <laughs> Tilden. <laughs> well, it's on his mind. That's definitely that. That um, whole... I love scene, that, scene. that whole world. I mean, but first that scene, you know, they leave the restaurant. You, you know, we've seen these men drink before, but my, we've not seen. This was like an indulgence on the writer's part of just, let's just. And these actors, you know, I mean, the giggling of, of Roger and, and Don. You know what it seemed to me? It seemed like the kind of thing that you would be given an assignment in a writing class, <laughs> you know, come up with something, come up with some little scenario that you have to open and close a, a short scene with. And this would be the kind of thing where it's like you go in, you can't get into the club, you tip the guy, is you it get Milwaukee? Passed, and then you remember the, <laughs> is it Milwaukee? You know, and it's some some 420-pound uh, bouncer who's there. That whole little back and forth with the bouncer is a lot of fun. Again, we've now entered into this world. I mean, we've got the prostitute who neither of them want anything to do with. We've got... Um, <laughs> I, love, I love Roger's line. Are we, are we lucky? Well, tonight, no, but in, 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 in general, yes. <laughs> you know, we talked earlier about Marilyn Monroe, and she's this icon of whatever she's an icon of and how the women react. And now on the other end of the day, we've got these two very male celebrities, Floyd Patterson and mm-hmm. Jimmy fucking Barrett. <laughs> Is it there that that Roger starts um, needling Don, or does that not happen until the other bar? Yeah, I forget. There might be a bar there that they're sitting at when he's counting his money, and that's where the conversation, that's where the first conversation starts, is? and then they drop Freddie off, they get Freddie out, and then they go to a bar themselves. So here's what I noticed about that conversation. It reminded me very much of the discussion that we had about Father Gill and his mm. probing of Peggy with the knowledge that he already had and how I said, right. I said, you know, I've done that. I've pretended to be psychic with my friends. Right. <laughs> and here's Roger. Right. Absolutely doing that. And I, like I said, I got, I was so angry this time. I was so angry at Roger playing him like this. And, mm-hmm. you know, Roger's such a baby and he just hates being left out of anything. And he just wants to know yeah. he's not, he's listen. he's not there to share. He's not telling what he's doing. Right. 
He's he's fucking Don's secretary, and he's not. He play, he, I think the the bigger thing in Roger's mind is he places great value on being the confidant, being the being the guy, being the guy, be, be, on, on having all the knowledge and all the dope on everybody, and that's part of why he was with Joan, and that's part of how he runs that office. Right? It's very privileged. It's very, you know, we're, we'll find out later how how he you know, came to get to know Don to begin with. He he feels very entitled to all the private goings on. Yeah, he's a he's an entitled brat. I he he yeah. absolutely is. That's how he's acting. He could have deduced it the way he said he deduced it, but he actually doesn't have <laughs> those skills. Um and why bother when you're yeah. when you're fucking Jane who has no discretion at all and who is <laughs> really right. a piece of work. We then have the scene by the cab, which was just such a heartbreaking scene. You know, Freddie, who this is what it all comes down to, right? This is where we this is where we're gonna inevitably be. It, you know, he starts with, I'm gonna go to Philly, I'm gonna then I can start over, I can write that novel. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say that, but you know, he's really got that that inspired thing you get. And then he's right. down to it, like, my God, I've got to tell Violet. What am I gonna yeah. do Monday morning? You know? Sitting home, yeah, Absolutely. and it's heartbreaking. Yeah, and these are two guys in Don, in Don and Roger who have no freaking clue how to handle a guy. You know, they're 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 consoling themselves. Look, he's having a great time. He's fine. He'll be fine. You know, it's like, yeah, he's high and he's out with you and he's loaded and he's sitting next to Floyd Patterson, Jimmy right. Barrett, and, and in this underground underground club. Who wouldn't? You know, yeah. Right now, he's fine. Monday morning, it'll be here before you know it. Yeah. You know, like that's his toast. So yeah, there, there's a there's a lot of old white guys who don't know how to have zero emotional intelligence for all for as as emotionally intelligent as Don really is because we've seen it. And he, he, his work exudes it. He, um, yes, he 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 doesn't, he doesn't apply it very this, well. This real stuff isn't <laughs> this 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 real stuff isn't isn't his bag. So he he has nothing to tell Freddie. He has nothing to tell you know. And we saw it in in um what was it long weekend. Right, everyone say, "What do I do, Don? What do I do?" He says, "I don't know. I don't know. I, he can't." He's he only knows useless. how to manage the situation. Going back to Long Weekend, right. he knows, you know, your wife's name is Mona, and he and he knows to tell the <laughs> cab right. driver whatever else he says. This is where you're taking him. I mean, that was a very shrewd, <laughs> right, like thing to inject. I love that Freddie gives the cab driver his apartment number. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he may have to buzz that number. That's he may have best. to pull him out of the cab and buzz not, that number. It's not something you'd normally give to the cab it driver. Horrible. It was very funny. The the passenger can usually get themselves in into the residence. After Don has hauled off on Jimmy Barrett, none of them understand why. Yeah. And then they leave, and Don's like, no, I'm going to call it a night. And then the next thing we see, they're in another bar. That's right. And now he finally does tell Roger what's happening in his life. I see this as a great piece of misdirection. I don't know if it was drawn that way, or if that's just the way I read it, but there's a tremendous amount of ambiguity in how Roger talks to Don. The grand gesture and, you know, you, you don't want to stay married. It's not a natural state, but you do it anyway. And what are you going to do? You're married. You know, all this kind of stuff that leads one to think that that Roger is sort of advocating for marriage in some weird way or at least keeping the family together no matter what it takes there's that ethos that that Roger's projecting at least that that's how i perceive it now i don't know i've tried listening to it both ways and i'm not quite getting that it could mean either thing but that seems to be what Roger's getting at so when we have the reveal at the end of the episode, it's counter to all that. So I don't know if Roger was just talking out of his ass or if it was really a misdirection kind of thing. How, how do you read that? It was that? a little of everything. I mean, I think Roger I think Roger was genuinely giving advice, but he also, listen, Roger didn't know anything about what was really happening between Don and Betty, right? Correct. And I think, the, I think where it turned for Roger... So he was speaking to somebody and he had assumptions in his head about what he thought he was speaking into. And then Don says, I'm relieved. And Roger's like, oh, oh, I like that. How do you think that was it? That was, that it. was the moment. I am pretty sure that was the was signal. That was the, the clarion call. Oh. If I'm using that correctly, I never know what that means. 
I was telling Roger what he, what he wanted to hear that he didn't know he wanted to hear. He didn't know it was, there was such a thing. It was, it was surprising for us to hear. And it oh, definitely, you know, here's Roger who, you go back to Roger and Joan. And Roger talked all the time about, like, but, but flippantly, right? Oh, I wish mm. I could marry you. And she's not having it, you know? And yeah. Roger, it seems from this conversation to this point, you know, Roger always goes back to Mona. Like, whatever may or may not have ever happened mm. there. And it sounds like, you know, bigger fights and bigger, bigger splits and you know it, it's mm-hmm. come closer than than we've heard about is what it sounded mm-hmm. like but roger knows he always goes home to mona and all of a sudden he hears that word relieved so you think that was a trigger and you've got jane who is the younger model you know and that and that it, part of the reveal about jane makes makes the scene with joan on his couch even that much more poignant you know, there's, mm-hmm. you kind of saw that scene and there's always, you always wonder about Roger and Joan and you're wondering it right there. You know, at this point we've seen Joan with her husband a little bit and there's domesticity there. So when he, so when he's constantly, I always imagined you like this, but never in this situation, you know, the more flirting and the more come ons and all this kind of stuff. It's at this point we're conditioned more misdirection to feel that it's a harmless. Har- yes, harmless, but but I but but I think where the question lives is like is Roger still pining for Joan? And now we can even though it's not like Roger would ever not be attracted to Joan, but we now know hours later on the same day, oh no, Roger's, you know, we don't find out until the next we don't find out until the next day, but Roger's pining Roger's, Roger's pining for for, for not, not Moan. Well, and Roger's Roger's taken. Roger's pines are taken <laughs> right now. Um, right. That's where I think it shifts. That's interesting. That's really good. He said, I'm relieved. Okay. And you kind of are like, whoa. And Roger's kind of like, whoa. And all of a sudden, and it's everything from there afterward that Mona quotes at Don yeah, the next day. Because so, that's what, because that went from Roger schooling Don to Don school. That's Roger. right. And he didn't plan to. I mean, he was schooling him, but not, but he was being just vague and Don-like. Yeah, that's, and that's, that's how I read the whole thing, but I didn't recognize that shift. And neither did Don. Don's like, I didn't know. I, I wasn't advising him. I had, no, I had nothing to do with this. And then Mona shows up in her in her doily costume. I'm going to be a, a, tea, a, tea, a tea cozy for Halloween <laughs> the next day to blast him. But what was, she, she quoted Don to Don, and he was like, well, I didn't mean that. Oh, about moving forward. It's your life. You don't know how long it's going to be, but you know it's got a bad ending. You have to move forward. As soon as you can figure out what that is. There were a few of those little Don-isms, you know, put, put the past right. behind you, move forward. But they weren't, they weren't no. clues for Roger to be picking up on, but he did. Oh, that's yeah. good. No, that's, that's what really happened. Good. Okay. Wow. You know, Dan, back in our Christmas viewer mail viewer mail. I crack myself up with that episode. <laughs> I had promised that we had one question that we had to sort of put on hold until this episode. One of our Patreon members, Annie Yano, had this question about six-month leave. Don Rogers sitting at the bar after saying goodbye to Freddie. Don comes clean to Roger after lying about living in the hotel, saying his marriage is falling apart. Roger asks Don if he fell in love. Don says no. But I feel like Don is lying. Roger and Don both lament about not being with the perfect girl out there. I feel like Roger is talking about Joan. Huh. I'm unsure who Don is thinking about on that one. I just want to hear your thoughts. Is Don telling the truth about not falling in love? He's kind of between women at this point. What do you think, Dan? I think, uh, first of all, well, I have a name for the segment. Um, it's not viewer mail. It's they asked it. I see what you did there. Right? Yeah, it's catchy. They asked it on, they coined it. I okay, gotcha. so that's number one out of the way. And Annie, I understand, contributes to our Patreon, does she not? She is a patron on our Patreon. She is a Patreon member. She's one of our patrons. <laughs> She's very patriotic. I just pulled a fucking Dan. Yeah, good, good deal. Uh huh. Feels good, doesn't it? No. Nope. Um, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> uh, well, if she's a Patreon of ours, um, then she's absolutely right. She nailed it spot on. <laughs> You're absolutely right, Annie. Suck Congratulations. <laughs> you win. Um, <laughs> you win. 
No, I, I actually do feel that Don was being honest in that moment. I do. I, I think both from the way he sold his answer, he was being honest. Mm -hmm. I, he kind of put a little something into it. <laughs> if you remember, he's kind of like, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, hell no. Yeah. Um, and remember, Don's the guy. Episode one, he's talking to Rachel Menken. Oh, you mean love, like thunderbolts and lightning and everything stops. And right. she's like, yeah. And he's like, well, that was invented by guys like me for, for cynical reasons of commerce. And it's what you think is love doesn't exist. I still think he's thinks he's that guy. I'm not saying he is that guy, and I'm not saying he's impervious to love and feelings and all the all that stuff. No, I don't think Don's in love. That he thinks of himself as the guy that can't fall in love. And, yes. Hmm. That's and, interesting. And, and, kind of, and kind of dismisses it in others. That's interesting. One of the things that I think in that scene is Roger keeps seeing this as having been Don's decision. Mm. And that's because of where Roger is. Correct. I think Roger is... Um, not considering leaving Mona for Jane in that moment. I think that Roger is a person who wishes he could leave his wife for Jane. Roger, Roger in his approach to Don and his assumption that Don is the one who left because he's in love, I think where Roger sits is... Like, I think Roger has never taken it past the joking about it that he did with Joan. Oh, I wish we could be married or I wish we could be together. I don't think he's ever thought it beyond a thought. I don't think he's actively considering it until until later when Don says what he says. So I think, and, and then that's the pivot point. But for Don, you know, Don was ready to leave for Rachel. Now, he was ready to leave for Rachel in a moment of panic. And he was going to tell himself that he left for love. But that's not why he was leaving in that moment. He actually never did make the move for love. No, out of total fear. But he would have told himself he left for love. But he hasn't done it. And he hasn't been in love since. And so, no, I don't think he's lying. Yeah. And, and, and I think the evidence for that, the strongest evidence for that, other than, like I said, how he delivered the line, is there's nobody yet. There's nobody in his life. There's no one we could make a claim. He's. I think the, we, the audience, would know if there was a love. of. But I think that is more, as you say, that's Roger's view of things. So that's like Roger projecting onto Don and Betty's marriage. Exactly. That it must be Don who's running around if there's a problem. Because Don, Roger could not imagine Betty leaving Don, even right. though that's exactly what's happening. And it is Don's running around that is the problem, but just not the way that Roger has construed it. Yeah. All right, great. So yeah, so that's that's that, our take. That's They asked it. love, by the way, in Don's office, we get the straight shot of Mona, almost from Don's perspective. We've never had just a full screen shot of that character before. She's always in screen with Roger, the kids, or whatever. It's never quite fully centered on her until that moment. And that's a really great sort of, it grabs the viewer by the lapels to say, Mona's about, Mona's about to drop And we don't know shit. why. We don't understand and what's going on here. Like, we have no... It's totally we from We don't the know blue. any of this. I mean... It, and when we look back, it's, what do we say? Surprising and inevitable. Because, goddamn, <laughs> the minute the minute Jane walked into his office with that box, <laughs> it led straight to this. She, she's a piece of work. So, and get oh, her yeah. off my desk. She's off my desk. Oh. Which is... Don, um, going back to your theme, I know it. I can see it in your face. Goes, 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 goes right back to this. This is why we don't mix the two, and I'm not mixing the two. And I didn't think I was mixing the two, but now that I am, fuck this. Get her, Get her off, her off, my, off desk. my desk. And that, and that, because because uh, there's nothing Don hates more than being played. And the two of the <laughs> two of them has been playing him. Every, I mean, she but, but, she's with her. You know, this thing where I mean, Sal. Like, Sally calling was the excuse for her to finally be able to say what she's been yeah. suspecting the whole time. And that's, again, that's because she's a secretary who's paying attention. Did Sally, now Now it begs the question, did Sally really call? Oh, yeah, I don't think she would make that. I don't think you can make that up. That's, no, yeah, no, 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 me. no. Because wasn't, there, because wasn't there something when Don tells Betty that Sally called the office, she says, when, Monday, Betty says something, and now I want to go back and look. Does Betty say something where she goes, something like, Sally knows not to call, or something I, like I, that? Sally's, I can so see Sally calling. I can absolute, I can absolutely, too. Sally that, knows, it, you know, it, Carl's it totally making plausible. dinner, Betty's wherever the fuck had passed out. She knows how to take that phone, bring it into a okay, closet, and just, call Daddy at the office. 
and, and, and Just you know, checking. Sally's smart. Mommy's been lying. I mean, it's you know, no, I don't. No, I know. But but there was there, there was a comment there that I'm now going to want to revisit just in case. I don't I don't rec- I don't recall it, but you could be right. But I don't I um I I don't think so. Okay, so we've we've covered the episode and we got nothing but quotes. Yeah, quotes. So one scene we we didn't talk about Peggy and Pete, you know, and she's basically how could you? And she says, if it wasn't for him, I'd still be a secretary. And all I could think was, in Bobby Barrett's voice, no, dear, if it wasn't for you, you'd still be a secretary. But Pete's line after that is is almost along the same lines, right? He says, if it wasn't for me, you'd still be a junior copywriter. <laughs> if it wasn't for me, you'd still be a junior copywriter. I refuse to feel bad. We're going to get raises. You could get his office. Now I'll go first. Congratulations, Peggy. And she says, congratulations, Pete. The same lesson Don was giving her. How so? When, when, what, what? Don, because right before that, she's in Don's office and Don gives her crap about being ambushed and why didn't you warn me and blah, blah, blah. And he says, look, don't. She says, I wish it didn't happen this way. He's like, but it did. It happened this way. Don't apologize for it. Don't don't apologize for being good at your job or something to that effect is what he says. And Pete's, the, the, the core of the message is the same thing. I'm not going to apologize for, for how this happened. Listen, I got, a, I got a better position when a really good friend of mine got fired. Like, it wasn't much of a better, whatever. But it was, it was terrible. It was, it was it happens heartbreaking. every day. And she was and, and, way unfairly yeah. fired. Like, it was a horrible situation. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So, I think, I think Don and Pete have the same, are of the same mind. On I agree with you. If it wasn't for him, I'd still be a secretary. Speaks of, it speaks of her kindness. It speaks of her lovingness. And her lovingness totally. ex- exuded yep. through this episode. But at the same time, it speaks of her undermining her own her, undermining her own power and recall that earlier in the right. episode she right away says it's a good thing we didn't go with the Joan and Marilyn campaign because we'd have to pull it and you see Don right. gives a very noticeable <laughs> oh she is on top of this she is thinking like she's Atta thinking girl. like a boss she's thinking like a me you know she's mm-hmm. thinking like a supervisor like of the whole like an account yeah. leader so yeah. No you know, question. she she she's she's earning her spot, and sometimes yeah, absolutely out with the bad. And she and she has loyalty to Freddie, which is nice. But that loyalty does not override a other loyalties, i.e., to Don, like we discussed. Uh, nor does it matter more than the other facts of the situation. Yeah, which is Freddie's got to go. Blah 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 blah. Take take his job. There, there you go. All right, great quote. Mine is, uh, I think it's at the first bar scene for Don and Roger. And Roger says, uh, you know, VBDO hired a colored kid. And Don's response is, I think I'm glad I'm not that kid. Now, this doesn't, (laughs) this isn't in the mix of really what we're talking about with the episode. But what I love about that and what I think it speaks to about Don, Roger's instigating of this topic is he's seeing it from VBDO's standpoint. Correct. Roger's the man. Roger's the man, right? Roger's, Roger is the society man. And it's what it means for it, the fact that it's a BBDO doing it. And isn't that interesting? And they hired him. Don sees that exact same incident from the kid's point of view. I wouldn't want to be that kid. You know, and that's a fascinating thing about Don Draper. Don Draper looks to all of us as the perfect privileged person. And in many ways he is. I mean, Don Draper has gotten as far mm-hmm. as Don Draper has gotten because well, we've it's not, the, it's, the yeah, looks. it he's isn't, I mean, he could have that same, but perfect package. Exactly. He's got all that talent, but he's also got the perfect package, but he sees himself as that kid. He sees himself as the kid that he was. He sees himself as no education, a whore child, total underdog. And everybody knows you're, ain't ain't you heard. Heard. yeah. So to him, that story is about the kid who has to fill that role. Don sees this, he sees it from the singular point of view, not the organizational point of view. Rogers, Rogers bringing it up was an organizational comment. BBDO did this. And he, he sees himself, yeah, partially as that kid, the outsider. But I think it's also part of that empathy that Don carries with him for other people. And that he so often ignores and shuts away and treats shits off everybody he sees. But uh, but there's a part of him that when you bring that up, he's going to see himself as that 
as that kid. And that, I don't know, that's one of the really, that's one of Don's saving graces. And I think it's very beautiful, um, despite everything else going on with Don. And honorable mentions, Don at the bar. I know what you're going to say. It was a real Archibald Whitman maneuver. <laughs> Who's that? It's a hothead yeah. drunk I used to know. You know, I mean, Don, Don's been drinking for 85 hours at this point, and he allows mm-hmm. himself to say that, but then, but, but still, still going to pull it back. Yep. Secret. Because, <laughs> yeah. That's right. Well, it's kind of like, uh, like him um, using the name Tilden Katz. No one knows who that That's is. Right. right. They, they all act like they're in on the joke, but no Yeah, no, it's just Tilden a ridiculous Katz name. Is. They're laughing at the ridiculous name and the idea that he could possibly have, be Jewish. That's just ridiculous. This is the craziest thing. But it's meaningful. Yeah. It's meaningful to Don, and he's not he's not letting on why. All right. So next week Oof. we've got the inheritance. We're really rounding. I mean, we are yeah. now in the, you know, racing toward the end of season. Well, two. we have we have the inheritance, which I need I don't remember a thing about, actually. And then it's the jet set. Talk about a turn. So uh, oh boy, kids, boys and girls. Awesome stuff, six-month lead. We're already booking guests for next season. We'll come back with our schedule at some point. Um, We're probably going to take a break once this season ends, as we did last season. But do you believe it? We're heading towards the end of our second season. Um, We've got only fantastic episodes. to Not not that there's been any bad ones, but, (laughs) you know, we really are. This is is, the end of this season just goes places. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. As always, we thank you for listening, and we will see you soon. Bye-bye. Hey, Coiners, we're so glad you're enjoying the show. Please give us rave reviews on Apple Podcasts and share us on social media. If you'd like to support us, we are at patreon.com slash theycoinditpod. Our members get extras and outtakes. We love hearing from you. And yet, we've been giving you the wrong email address. Reach us at questions at theycoinditpod.com. Hang with us on Twitter and Instagram, TCI Mad Men Pod. We've got so much more Mad Men to get to and more special guests. We're looking forward to all of it with you. See you next episode.